Acts chapter 2. And we continue with our series on the Acts 2 church. The Acts 2 church. And today, the strategy of the Acts 2 church. The strategy of the Acts 2 church. What were they attempting to do? And in the book of Acts chapter number 2, open your Bible there, and why don't you stand with me, please, as we read God's Word together. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 and 42. Acts 2, 41 and 42. Then they that gladly received his word, after Peter had finished preaching that day on Pentecost, they gladly received his word. And that's the way they describe salvation. Gladly receiving the word, the gospel, if you will, of Christ. They that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Added to them, added to the 120 who had begun the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And if you'll go down to verse 46, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness. The breaking bread there is hospitality within the homes. Breaking bread from house to house. And that they did eat their meat with gladness and with singleness of heart. Notice that phrase, singleness of heart. Praising God. And having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved, and you may be seated. Well, this is the third message that I brought to you from this passage on the Acts 2 church. And I began by telling you that my call to the ministry to preach the gospel came years ago when I was living in Indianapolis, Indiana, working on the staff of a church much like this one. And I began a series of studies on Acts chapter number 2. And there it was that I got what I would say a vision to come to South Carolina back home and to plant a church that became this church. And I could, I'll never live long enough to get over what God did in my heart in those days as I studied this passage over and over and over. And in the early years of the church, over and over and over and over, I would preach on Acts chapter 2. Probably people got sick of hearing it. But it was so basic. I felt that I had discovered something. I really hadn't discovered anything new, but I discovered it was new to me. And it thrilled my heart and it thrilled my soul for this reason, that I saw in that church something that I'd never seen in any church I'd ever been in or been around. Absolutely unique, so beautiful, so powerful that it just captured my heart and my mind. And I came here without a great deal of experience to begin the Florence Baptist Temple because of that study. 
And through the years, I've always wanted the church here to be like the Acts chapter 2 church. I wanted, to, I wanted to people to read Acts chapter 2 and say, hey, the Florence Baptist Temple looks a lot like that. That's always been my dream and my goal. That's my vision for this church and my ministry. Now, what were the characteristics of these people, real quickly? Well, number one, they loved the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart, with all their soul, and all their mind. You know, Jesus said there are two things that sort of encapsulate all that we're to do as Christians. And the first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Well, boy, they did that. And that's a challenge for any pastor to try to preach and teach and and inspire people of that. And that's what is his command. That's his command for your life, that you love him with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. The second characteristic is the second part of the Lord's command there, not only to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind, the vertical commandment, if you will, but a horizontal one as well. And that is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And boy, how they did that. I mean, you look at these people, they got hold of that truth. Their love was so genuine. It was so authentic, so real. They took off their mask that people wear when they come to church psychologically. And they shared their lives. They shared their possessions. They laughed together and cried together and prayed together and sang together. They ate together. They lived together. They served together and they died together. I mean, their life was bound up with that local church, that bride of Christ, that assembly, that called out assembly that the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Ephesians 5, the scripture says that he died for. And so they... They did this too, by the way, in the midst of a very hostile culture around them. Keep in mind that when Acts chapter 2 was written, Jesus Christ had been crucified. I mean crucified, murdered, publicly murdered and executed only six weeks before this. Only six weeks. So this is really a, this is really a brave thing on their part that they would even come out in the public and that they would stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and say, we think we live in a hostile culture. <laughs> you can't even compare the hostility of this culture to what they were living in, having seen the Lord Jesus Christ crucified just recently. And the result of all this is that their lives were absolutely transformed. Their lives were, their lives were charged with the power of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. Every single one of them seems to have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Now, the question then before us on this third week that I've talked about this, is it possible to have an Acts chapter 2 church in 2016? Or is that a one-time event never to be repeated is Acts chapter 2 clear off of the radar screen for us? Or is Acts chapter 2 something that we should aspire to, a vision that we should still hold, a dream that we should have as a congregation of God's people? 
Well, I ask you to focus on that phrase there with singleness of heart, verse number 46. Meaning, I think it's possible, but I think it's so difficult in our world today, as it was then, but for a different set of reasons, that they had a unity of purpose that is so unusual in a world where people are taught to live for self first. Because when everybody lives for self, you can't have a singleness of heart. You can't have a unity of purpose. You can't have one overriding strategy that you believe God has called you to because everybody's going in every point on the compass. And yet I believe that in these verses, God gave us a pattern for the Florence Baptist Temple. He gave us a strategy that if we will redevote ourselves to carrying out that strategy, the greatest days of this church will still be in the future. That we should not look backward and talk about the good old days. I like to reminisce about the old theater building and various events through the years. But you know what? I don't want to go back there. And we have got to be future-focused visionary, dreaming of a better day for this church and for your family and your role in it. And so today I want to share with you the strategies that they used in that Acts chapter 2 church, the strategies. Strategy number one, an Acts 2 church is a church with a great vision. An Acts chapter 2 church is a church that has a great vision. Now go back to chapter one and verse eight here, which is really, many people think, the uh, key verse of the entire book of Acts. Acts chapter one and verse eight. The Lord Jesus Christ is the spokesman. And he says, you shall receive power, talking to the 11 remaining apostles. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem in Judea, the surrounding area around the city of Jerusalem, in Samaria, the regional area next to Jerusalem, and then ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. We call this the Great Commission, repeated here in the book of uh, Acts chapter number two, of course. And so this is Christ's own vision for his church. And it's implied in all of the statements of the Great Commission. The last time that I preached along this line was probably about four or five years ago. And I preached on the Great Commission, and I became so uh, convinced that this has to be the heartbeat of a church, that I, I had the Great Commission framed and beautifully lettered, and we hung it out there in the foyer, Rather than a bunch of pictures or whatever, we said the main thing when people walk in this church, the first thing they will see is the mandate of the Savior, the Great Commission. And the last thing they will look at going out the door, if they look at the wall, will be Christ's commission to us. This great, great thing that has been our mandate from day one as Christians. Notice the vision of Jesus Christ for his church. First of all, it's as big as the whole world. He said, go into all the world. So the Lord is not 
satisfied with just a little group of people meeting together. Every now and then I run into somebody, oh, I don't want to come to the Baptist temple. It's too big. I like a little church. I want to know everybody. Well, then you're not going to be very happy in heaven because there's going to be a lot of people there the last time I checked it out. And let me tell you today, the Lord's commission to us is the whole world. That's a pretty big vision, isn't it? And then but it's as small as an individual. He didn't forget the individual and every creature. So it's as big as the world and it's as small as every individual. And notice how long the commission lasts to the end of the age. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize the converts and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. And so an Acts 2 church dreams bigger. Say that with me. They dream bigger. They think in terms of the whole world, and they think in terms of every creature. They're never satisfied. Are you satisfied with your Sunday school class? Wouldn't you like to reach one more? Are we satisfied with the number of people that we baptize? Wouldn't we like to baptize at least one more? Are we satisfied with the amount of influence and impact we can have on our region, on our community, or would we not like to have a little more? Absolutely, every time. The world is coming in and washing over us like a tsunami wave, and our families and our, our way of life and our, our, our faith is being attacked in every way possible, and it's time for the people of God to quit being little thinkers and big stinkers. It's time to wake up and dream bigger for the Lord and say, we must do more for him because there's an urgency about our times, an urgency about our times. If we're not going to do it now, we're not going to ever do it. The clock is ticking on me. And don't you say, yeah, I know it, I can see that. Because the same clock is ticking at the same rate for you. And I don't care if you're 15 or 150, right? And our days are limited. And the Bible says that we are to redeem the time. And we're to think as big as the whole world. This was not a pastor's vision that I'm talking to you about. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's vision for his church. This is his vision. They ran in last Sunday. I preached to you on vision killers. Boy, they ran into the same problems we run into. Nothing has changed. That's why this is an eternal, uh, eternal plan here. They just got started good, and they had the government man come down and tell them they didn't have the right license to preach. And persecution started in chapter 4. And it gets worse in chapter 5. And by chapter 7, they have the first martyr. They kill Stephen. Persecution can sure distract people from the vision, but it didn't distract them. They didn't miss a beat. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 5, they have Ananias and Sapphira, two of their major leaders, lie to the Holy Spirit, and God strikes them down in judgment. He removes them from the whole church. Did it stop them? I'm sure they grieved. 
They probably loved Ananias and Sapphira. They were some of the finest members. They were pillars in the church. But it didn't stop them. It didn't slow them down. And then in chapter 6, there's murmuring and complaining. Not the, they must have been Baptist. Murmuring and complaining swept over the church. And they had to appoint some assistants and get some work done. But did the murmuring and complaining slow them down? Not one bit. No, sir. Those vision killers did not stop the Acts chapter 2 church. You know, I've watched this happen through the years. Vision leaks, I like to say. Vision leaks. Meaning that people can really get hold of the vision and then the problems of life and difficulties and distractions come along and before long, they've forgotten why we're here. And so I want to call you back to it periodically. We must never forget that the Acts chapter 2 church had a vision as big as the world and as small as every individual. Strategy number two. The Acts 2 church seeks God's power through prayer and fasting. The Acts chapter 2 church seeks God's power. And they know that the only way you can have God's power upon your life personally and individually or upon the church or upon the cause of Christ is through prayer. I want you to turn back with me to the last chapter of the book of Luke. And Luke was written by this same author here, Luke, Dr. Luke, a physician. He wrote Acts and he wrote, wrote the, the gospel of Luke. And in the very last chapter of Luke, Jesus has just given the great commission to his disciples. And then in verse 48, he said, now you are witnesses of these things that you've seen in my life. And in verse 49, notice this verse, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. What is the promise of the father? It was that the Holy Spirit was going to come after Jesus left. The promise of the Father is the coming of the Holy Spirit. I send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry ye. We don't use that word much anymore, to tarry. We talk about waiting. Wait in the city of Jerusalem. Don't even leave town. Don't go out and attempt the first thing until you are endued with power from on high. Go back home to Jerusalem Begin to seek the face of God. Wait on God until you have his power. Pray. And that's exactly what they did. They went back to Jerusalem. And then go back now with me to Acts chapter 2. And they had a 10-day period of when they concentrated on praying. Did they pray the whole time? I, I don't know. I doubt that. That would be almost impossible. But there was serious prayer and waiting upon the Lord to send the Holy Spirit for 10 days. And then the Holy Spirit came for the first time in history upon the church. And what was the purpose of him coming? Not for self-edification primarily. It was to empower them, just like it said over there in Luke. 
that they would have power. What do I mean by power? I mean that when they began to live out their lives, they had supernatural help and direction. I mean that when they witnessed to anybody that the Holy Spirit would come in great power and bring conviction and grip their hearts with the truth of God's word. I mean that God would do things for them and through them they could not do for themselves. There was a supernatural dimension to their life and to their ministry. That's what it means to be endued with power from on high. And when the Lord told them to tarry, to wait, now listen to me, I don't want you to miss this because this is not being preached today. Waiting upon the Lord implies time with God, maybe even lots of time with God. If you want God's power and anointing on your life, you can't hurry God up. He's going to come in his sovereign timing, I can tell you that. But they were told to wait and to tarry and to pray. And in other places, they fasted. They even went without food and took the time they normally would spend in eating and spent it on their knees in prayer in order to obtain the power, the anointing of God upon their life. Now, in my preaching here, on being an Acts 2 church. I and our staff have a lot of plans. I met with all of our deacons the other night. I met with our teachers last Wednesday night. And I've laid out plans and purposes and really strategy where we can do a lot better to achieve that that vision and that goal and the strategies of Acts chapter 2. And the first thing I've been doing is trying to enlarge our vision and challenge us to think bigger and not be satisfied with where we are. The second thing is I'm going to call on you and ask you to begin in a very serious and focused way to pray, to pray like you haven't been praying. And I've got three specific requests. I don't know if there's any room in the program or not, but if there's not, find you a scrap of paper. There are three specific requests I want you to pray for. Will you please listen to me? And I hope that you will begin to really seriously pray for my three requests. When you pray for me, say, Lord, the pastor asked me the other day to pray for three things. And here are the three. Number one, I want you to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to live a godly life. I mean, you live a godly life. I live that every one of us will live a life of consecration, righteousness, and godliness, that people will look at us and see Christ in us. And we can't do that through willpower. You can't do that through duty. You can't do that by just saying, "Mm, I'm going to work at that and do that. Uh Uh-uh. No, if you're going to live a godly life in the wicked times in which we live, you need the Holy Spirit's power and his anointing in your life. You need him to keep you from temptation. You need him to speak to you and and stir your heart when you're so discouraged and, and life seems to be caving in, to keep from being distracted. Number one, pray 
that God will help you, you live a godly life. So many of us in America today, we have bought in, but we haven't sold out. We've bought in, oh yeah, I'm a part of the evangelical Christian community, but we haven't sold out. And I'm challenging you for special times of prayer that God will help you to live in a godly fashion. Number two, that you will pray that the Holy Spirit will empower you to witness boldly, unashamedly, that he will help you reach your family, your friends, your associates at work, and so on. Wednesday night, we put a new little thing in our prayer sheet, and I challenged our folks that night, please fill in the name, the blanks there, and begin to pray for the people that you really care about for their salvation. If their salvation is in doubt, if you're not sure they're saved, begin to pray for them by name. I would love to hear testimonies where somebody would stand up and say, you know what, I was lost. I didn't care anything about my soul. I wasn't thinking about what's out there in eternity after death. But you know what? Some people at the Baptist temple began to pray for me. And the Holy Spirit began to convict me and show me my need of Christ. And now I've come to know the Lord. And it's because people cared about me. They had compassion on my soul. And I ask you, as a brother or sister in Christ, to pray that the Holy Spirit will empower you to witness and reach other people. And thirdly, that you will pray for revival in America. I'm not praying that the Lord will change the lost and ungodly world. I'm praying that the Lord will change the Christians' hearts in America. Until that happens, go back to 2 Chronicles 7 and 14. If my people, my people, there's the problem. The problem is not the lost people. Lost people are acting exactly like lost people are supposed to act. If a lost man goes out and gets drunk, that ain't no big deal. That's what lost people do. If a lost man lies, that's not a big thing. Lost people are supposed to lie. But it's God's people where the revival has to begin, folks. If my people shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and I'm asking you to do that. I'm going to start a series of messages at some time in the fall, either on Wednesday night or Sunday night, I'm not sure which, about the nine people in the Bible, nine of them, who prayed and fasted for very special and specific things. And when they did, God heard their prayer and transform their lives. I believe so much in this. I hope you sense it this morning as I preach it to you. Strategy number three, quickly, is an Acts 2 church as witnessing as their priority activity. An Acts 2 church, the priority activity always is witnessing. Take your Bible again, Acts 1. Acts chapter 1, if you'll flip back there with me. And in verse 8, it says, And you shall be witnesses unto me when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
Go to chapter 1 and verse 22. They're appointing a new apostle to take the place of Judas. The qualification for that man, among other things, is that he is a fervent witness. We don't want a new apostle who doesn't believe in witnessing, who doesn't practice witnessing. Chapter 2 and verse number 32 indicates that all of those Christians were witnesses. We all, it wasn't the job of the pastor, the staff, the deacons, the Sunday school teachers. All of us are witnesses. In fact, we still are. We're either good witnesses or we're poor witnesses, but we all witness. And I go over to chapter 4 and verse 13. Their witness was characterized by boldness, not brashness. They didn't go around embarrassing people, but a holy boldness. They were not afraid to talk about Jesus. They were not ashamed to be identified with Jesus. In chapter 5 and 28, In 528, it says that they had filled the whole city with their doctrine. They witnessed so much that everybody had heard from them. They touched every home and every person. And in chapter 5 and verse 32, or pardon me, 42, it says, And daily in the temple they ceased not to teach and preach. In other words, both in the home and at the church, it was an unceasing effort. They didn't get tired. They didn't say when they were 55 or 60, oh, I've already done my share. It was an unceasing thing for old and young for every single member of that church. Listen, we're told today that 90% of the professing evangelical Christians in America never share the gospel of Christ one time in their life. I've often wondered what would be the percentage if I had everybody sign an anonymous card. I have or I have not witnessed to somebody in my lifetime. When every single member of this church witnessed, and when it was the obvious priority activity, why is it so hard to get people to witness for Christ? I think it's we're afraid of what somebody will think about us. And that will, that will stop our witness until we get to the point that we're more concerned about what the Lord Jesus thinks about us than the person to whom we're getting ready to speak. And then our lips will be open. Witnessing is simply carrying the light out into the darkness. Has there ever been a time in Western civilization when there was a greater need for light and darkness than there is today? But you know what's the good news about witnessing that I don't think we preachers stress enough? Witnessing does more for you than it does for the person you speak to. There are two or three things that witnessing, when I began as a young man to learn to witness for Christ, Here's what I found out. I found out that witnessing got me off the fence. That until I began to witness, I was kind of straddling the fence. And I could kind of just sit there and be silent. And if, if I was with the world or if I was with the Christian, I just kind of had a foot in both worlds. 
Boy, when I began to witness for Christ, it put me solidly over here in this camp. And that may be what you fear, but it will bring to you the greatest joy you will ever have. You know what? The old prophet Elijah said, How long halt ye between two opinions? How long do we wait and decide that we would rather please the Lord than we would to please someone whose opinion really is pretty frivolous anyhow? I'm going to tell you something. You're only one decision away from having great victory in your life. You're one decision away from having great victory in your life. And in my opinion, the single greatest decision is that you begin to witness openly for Christ. It'll do something for you that even, you know, we think, we emphasize beginning the day with the Bible in your lap and your knees bent at the throne of grace and having a devotional. But I'm going to tell you, if you have a devotional and you never open your mouth for the Lord, you're still disobedient to his command. And I don't know of a kinder way to say it. And when you begin to talk to the people that you love and that love you and know you, you really do, you get out from those two opinions and you begin something else. And that's this, that witnessing is the greatest joy. It brings the greatest joy into my life of anything that I do. I've had the opportunity to preach in some, some amazing places. But I can walk off the platform sometimes after preaching to a lot of people in some convention or something. And it, okay, I just preached again. But when I walk out of a little home somewhere in the PD and I've sat down and shared the gospel and looked into a man or woman's eyes and told them about the love of Jesus and how he can change their life, I'll tell you that's the greatest thrill I have in my ministry. That's why I keep on bugging you about it all the time. I want you to have that joy. And there's another thing too. If you look at chapter number five, verse number 32 I believe witnessing is one of the requirements for being filled with the Holy Spirit. It says that God gives the Holy Spirit to them that obey him in the context of witnessing. And I believe there are so many Christians today that are living defeated lives because in that one area they never have, they never have come across and said, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to begin to speak And I believe witnessing gets you off the fence. Witnessing is one of the requirements for being filled with the Spirit. I believe that witnessing brings the greatest joy of anything that you can imagine to the Christian. And I'm going to talk to you about a plan, a whole new evangelism chapter in this church's life, but I won't do that this morning. I just want you to see the strategies. And the last strategy, number four, is And Acts chapter 2 church is on a mission to make disciples. And Acts chapter 2 church is on a mission. And the mission is to, one, of course, we have that big vision to reach the world. We seek God's power through prayer and fasting. We witness and the last and fourth strategy. And I don't think, I don't know that there's any more of them. 
I've really searched these passages for a long time. And these four things they did on a continuous basis, and they were on a mission to make disciples. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. Well, I preached to you recently from the book of Romans over and over on salvation is by grace. Doesn't cost you anything, absolutely free. But let me tell you, salvation, the gospel, costs us nothing, but it demands everything. It doesn't cost anything, but it demands everything. One of the things I hear about our church occasionally, particularly in the last few years with the so many churches taking a, 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 an approach where we never want to confront anything. I hear people say about the church, man, I tell you what, I like your ministry, Brother Bill, but I tell you, y'all are awful demanding. One of the deacons brought that up the other night. He said, I hear, I've heard people say that we're too demanding. And then I and our deacons had a little discussion. Well, what do we, what do we lower the standard on? Do we, make, do we make the church more like the sinner so the sinner is attracted to his own sin? No. We don't make it demanding. Let me tell you about the one who made it demanding. You know what he said? Take up your cross daily, follow me, and die to self. <laughs> that makes the Baptist temple look like a bunch of panty wastes. Take up your cross every day, die to your own desires, and follow me. That was our Lord who said that. <laughs> Y'all are not laughing with me. I think I have struck oil this morning. Is that not what he said? Do you think when we get to heaven, the Lord's going to call me on the carpet and say, Bill, you were too demanding. I'm having your reward. No, I think American evangelicalism has settled down into a rut where we want to make it so convenient we have made it very impotent. And why would the world want anything that doesn't give them victory and power more than what they have? And so let's not invert the gospel. In so many cases, we're not following Jesus. We're asking Jesus to follow us. Jesus, I've got my lifestyle. I'm going to give you a little slug of time. You know, here's your time. And now you follow me. And we won't build an Acts 2 church if that becomes the standard. Well, we've drawn a portrait of a disciple in our minds here at the church. And we've been talking about it in Sunday school. And there are four things that characterize a disciple real quickly. Number one, it's the way people think. You have to change thinking to become a disciple. We call it the biblical worldview. Disciples think biblically. They don't borrow their thinking from the New York Times or from Fox News or from the local college or whatever. Disciples think biblically. They evaluate life through a biblical lens. Number two, 
disciples find the power to have a transformed life. It affects their behavior because they realize they're carrying the testimony of the Lord Jesus with them wherever they go. And number three, disciples witness. We're back to that. So it affects their thinking. It affects our acting. It affects our speaking. And lastly, disciples serve. We get under the burden of the cause. We carry the banner. The local church is just a little piece of the kingdom of God. It's the embassy of the kingdom of God. And if we want to expand the kingdom, we do it through the local church. And it's many ministries that touch people's lives. And so if we can do those four things, if we can have a biblical worldview and see the power of God changing lives, and if we will witness and if we serve in whatever way God has gifted us and given us time to do, boy, we can have an Acts 2 church. That was it. Four things. A great vision, power from on high, witnessing unashamedly and making disciples, the Acts 2 church. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning.